0: While we think of the church's role that it plays in its community, it is all too easy to place emphasis on things that are really just good ideas or conceptually they make sense, but living them out is a completely different matter. Our time through the study of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus has drawn our attention to this fact. Christian living is supposed to be reflected in our actions and in our lives we place a great deal of focus on the order of actions and salvation in our church. In our Bible studies, in our sermons, we focus on the imperative nature that goes behind salvation coming first through grace alone, through faith alone, and that transpiring to having an effect on the way that we live our lives. And that's good because it fights against, and it even uh, contends with the common community's notion that if a person is simply essentially good, that when eternity comes to pass, that's a fun phrase to say, when eternity comes to pass, they will find themselves in heaven. Some of you are here this morning, and you hear me saying this, and you nod your heads acknowledging that The people that you know through Facebook and Instagram and see on TikTok that you walk by in the aisles in the grocery stores, your neighbors have this false idea. And we know that anyone that places their salvation or their hope of salvation on good works alone will ultimately find themselves in hell when eternity comes to pass. And I say that without reservation or trepidation because the Bible is clear, all man stand condemned. But I say to you, my church, my family, my friends, my loved ones, the people who I am praying about throughout the week, the people who are on my mind, who I think about most often, that as you nod your heads to that fact, would you consider that the church is equally as guilty of abusing the doctrines of grace? What do I mean by that? Let me contend That the church that abuses the doctrines of grace is in the same boat as those who have a works-based salvation. If we say that it is by grace that I have been saved and that it is by grace alone that I am preserved and I pay no attention to my actions or the way that my life reflects righteousness, we are in the same boat because grace leads to transformation. Where the running gets tough is when we realize that the Christian who has accepted their basic goodness and their lost... Lo- lo- and uh, I'm sorry. The Christian who has accepted their basic goodness and at the same time lost their passion to serve God, to honor Him, to humble themselves before Him is in the same boat as a lost neighbor who places their salvation story on their own good works. The issue of... Good and evil is an ancient issue. Cultures and societies have defined preferences that have attempted to define what is good and what is wrong. There is, though, a subtly agreed upon right and wrong that transcends communities. The founders of America wrote into the Constitution that there were some truths that we define to be self-evident, Truths that revealed and testify to the fact that there is an absolute good and an absolute wrong. Some things that testify to their own validity. The only thing that the Bible reveals to, uh, reveals to do just this is God himself. God is his own testimony. He provides his own testimony to his own goodness and it's accepted without corroboration, corroboration because he is perfect. What is right and what is wrong is then equally defined by God's perfect goodness. As we begin this morning a study through the prophet Jonah and his ministry to Nineveh, I ask you then, as my friends, to truly seek to answer this question Is my view of being essentially good any different than a lost person with a works based view of salvation? I'd even ask you to write that down this morning as we get started. Put it in your bulletin or put it in a margin somewhere. Is my view of being morally, essentially good, any different than a person with a works-based view of salvation? We can't define this on our own. God has defined what is absolute for us. Are we willing to turn to that? to have the lens of what is right and wrong, what is good and what is evil, defined by God's Word and God's Word alone? Or, have we escaped to the same type of thought process? That as long as I've been saved and my faith is in Christ, and that I'm basically good, that my salvation is genuine. Without true salvation, without real transformation, without absolute yielding to God's Word, your salvation is no different than those who believe in works-based salvation. Turn with me then to the book of Jonah, and we will begin in chapter 1. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this morning, for giving us your word and for speaking through your word to us. Lord, I thank you that your word does not change, that we can read it. And we know that the truth that we read means the same thing that it meant when it was written originally. Whether that's hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, God, I'm so thankful for you. God, thank you for preserving your word for providing us the ability to come and worship you as believers together in this place, that we might glorify you and that your name might be exalted, that we might come to you with hearts that are open and ready to receive the truth found in your word. That as we turn to a study of your law, that we might know how to apply it to our lives today. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray. Amen. This morning I'll read from verse 1 all the way through verse 16 in chapter 1. The Bible says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for its evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it Where do you mean? What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous again for them against them therefore they called out to the lord o lord let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you o lord have done as it is ple- so for you have done as it pleased you so they picked up jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging then the men feared the lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the lord and made vows Most of you are probably familiar with what takes place in Jonah's ministry through Nineveh and the miraculous circumstances that bring him there. But I point out really quick that there's, besides this great fish that's going to come and deliver him to Nineveh, already a great amount of miracle has taken place. God has sent a great wind upon the sea. The lots have fallen on Jonah. And and we see God working to bring Jonah back to him. I've titled this series Running with God or rather a life on the run because our life in ministry as Christians is actually supposed to be reflective of a marathon race in chapter 1 we find life on the run running from God we start with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah the son of Amittai and I've said that context is imperative to being able to understand what is going on in any book of the bible that we would understand what it means originally because it cannot mean what it never meant jonah is alive in an interesting time fortunately this isn't the only place we find the prophet jonah working in the bible in fact in second kings chapter 14 we find more prophecy that Jonah provided mainly or namely to the northern tribe of Israel. See, Jonah was alive during the reign of King Jeroboam II. If you want to take a second, turn to 2 Kings chapter 14. I want to read verse 25 through 27. You see, Jeroboam, the king of Israel at the time, restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabia or Araba, sorry, according to the word of the Lord. The God of Israel, which He spoke by a servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-hepher. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash. And so I ask, what's going on in Israel at this time? Um, It would have been around 750 B.C., if you're interested in that, or a little bit before that, um, maybe 793 B.C., when Jeroboam's reign began. And Israel is experiencing a time of physical prosperity. Jeroboam was able to restore the nation of Israel's borders in the north all the way up to a place where they had not existed since the reign of Solomon. David Solomon, the second king in Israel. The borders have been extended in the north, and of course to the south they don't go quite as far because Israel's been divided amongst the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah at this point. But for the most part, the borders have been expanded, there's prosperity, and there's peace. The nation of Israel to the east is weak or at least tiresome, and so they are not currently in a state of war. Through the prophet Jonah, Uh, Living at that time, as um, the writer of 2 Kings records, the prophet told the people that they would be blessed because the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash, or Jeroboam the second. So, with this, we see things are actually going really well in Israel. For once, we find a a point in. Biblical history where Israel actually looks like things are going pretty well. They, physically, they're prospering. Additionally, there's no threats against them because the Assyrian Empire is weak. Babylon's not attacking them, even though that would come in about 100 years' time. There's no threats that are coming up against them. It's interesting to note, too, that in Second Kings, Jonah is identified as a man coming from Gath-Hefir, which, if you look at a map... Is located in Galilee because the well it's interesting because the the Pharisees said to Jesus in John chapter 7 that there were no prophets that came from Galilee well they were wrong Jesus wasn't the first one the first one would have been Jonah who came from that area, proclaiming first in his ministry to the northern kingdom of Israel, and then through God's commission, as we find in Jonah chapter 1, to the people of Nineveh. While it was certainly a time of physical prosperity, it's important to note that it was actually a time of spiritual poverty. Look at verse 24 in 2 Kings chapter 14, and we find that Jeroboam the second did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin. The condition of Israel, when we look at it, I think is humbling, reflective of many of the things that we can see today. A time when prosperity seems to reign in all the physical attributes. We have what we need, our physical needs are being met, um, but spiritually, the world is depraved. Jeroboam as king led the nation of Israel into sin. And I ask, what could have been so wrong or what national sin would there have been that Israel was facing? Fortunately, at the end of Jonah's life, we find, Amos, his contemporary, who records specifically what the transgressions of Israel were. Amos chapter 2, verse 6 through 10 reads, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go in on the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They slay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. For a timeline, Amos would have written thus in the year 760, So this would have been less than 30 years after Jonah's commission to go to Nineveh. The sins that Amos was writing about specifically, first, that they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, that they trample the heads of the poor, is simply that they regarded life and the value of life based on physical well-being. If you were rich, you were obviously worth more, the value inside of you was more. If you were poor, your worth was less. They trampled the heads of the poor and they continued to subject people through uh, different provisions. They held the poor in their positions. The, the position of Israel during this day was one in such that they did not value life in the way that God had commanded them to value life. Moreover, there was sexual immorality or unrestrained sexual sensuality, looking at slaves, fathers and sons going in on the same girl that my holy name is profane and all of these things God says profanes His name because it undermines the value of the image of God born into all people. Jonah had prophesied to Israel that no harm would come to them because God had not blotted them out of history. Despite the physical blessings the nation was experiencing, they were spiritually wicked. They disregarded human value and had placed understanding of their value on prosperity. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, a humble reminder for everyone I may have the gift of prophecy. I may fathom all mysteries, know all things, have all faith, enough to move mountains. But if I lack love, I have nothing. The root of Christian love, rather spiritual maturity, comes from a place of understanding what it means to care for the person you sit beside, the people you live beside, the community that you're called to. Giving us a principle that we must sure hold on to, Paul tells us that all biblical knowledge, all doctrinal understanding will mean nothing. It will have no value if we do not understand how to love our neighbor. Israel had everything in a physical sense. Paul wrote, if I had everything in a spiritual knowledge sense, it would still mean nothing if I didn't know how to love. If I didn't understand what love meant. Karl Barth, the renowned 20th century Swiss-German neo-orthodox theologian, there's a lot of words, spoke at Rockefeller Chapel on the campus of the University of Chicago. And if you know anything about Karl Barth, I don't suspect that many of you have read him. But if you have, you will know that he is one of the most convoluted writers that you could possibly read. Personally, I do not enjoy reading Barth's work, but I will struggle through it because he's got good stuff. He has complicated thoughts and complicated ideas, and when he writes, it's long, drawn-out sentences that are hard to comprehend. But here, at the Rockefeller Chapel on the campus of the University of Chicago, during the Q&A time, a student asked Barth if he could summarize his theology in a single sentence. As the story goes, Barth responded by saying, In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We can have all the understanding of the world about what it means to be adopted into God's family. Even looking recently through the book of Ephesians, we've gone through what is election look like? What does it mean to be grafted into this? To be in the image of God? To be in Christ? To have Him in me? To be identified with the church community? To have a relationship outside of the church that is a reflection of what's going on in the church? And all of these different things, all these great understandings, we can possess them, be able to eloquently present them, be able to grapple with them and explain them. And it means nothing if we do not have love I do not mean to undermine the hard work that goes into understanding doctrinal truth. There is a great value in wrestling with the issues of God's sovereignty and free will and how they work together to give us an amazing picture of God's grace. To navigate God's nature is perfectly just and perfectly loving. These things are good. Wrestling with them is an essential part of spiritual growth, but the work, should not simply be hard work. It should be heart work. It should be changing us. When we study the seven letters written to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we find a consistent theme. Ephesus is condemned for losing their first love. And then all the way to the end, we move and we find that the churches of Thyatria and Sardis have lost their own passion. And I think it's interesting that as you move through those letters, those churches, we go from a place of less prosperity to more prosperity. Sardis, which was poor in Thyatria, or even Laodicea, where we end, was perfectly rich. They had an abundance of wealth. There would have been no obstacle. Imagine a church being able to say, if we needed to take care of something, we would easily be able to do it with no contention because there was no unmet need but being so spiritually lost, they saw no need out in their community. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. Jonah is the first prophet in the entire reading of the Bible or any study that we can do through the Bible that we find that first of all runs away from God's commission second of all is called to go to a Gentile nation not Nineveh the word says that it was a great city and it certainly was Nineveh would have been the royal city for the Assyrian Empire at the time and most scholars reflect that the population in the time of Jonah would have reached around 600,000 Scholars suggest that at the time of Jonah's ministry, Nineveh would have been the largest city in the entire world. Established in Genesis, it wasn't just a large and well-established city, but it had a great history. Genesis chapter 40 records that Nineveh was founded by Nimrod, an old and well-established city. The greatest, biggest city in the whole world, but it was also a condemned city. Nahum, the prophet, would write later that, and it would come true 130 years after Jonah's time, that Nineveh would be condemned by the Babylonians who would conquer the Assyrian Empire. You see, in Nineveh, they worshipped a false god, most likely Ishtar, a water god. Assyria would have been conquered by the rising power of Babylon through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Go to Nineveh. God commissions his prophet, but his prophet rises up to flee Tarshish. Instead of going to the east, he goes as far west as he possibly can, going to the uh, the shoreline and joining a ship so that he can fare further and further away. The only prophet to ever refuse God's per- per- commission. I don't think Jonah was lacking in his knowledge of God or his issue was even that he didn't want to be a prophet. Just looking at 2 Kings, we can see the picture that he certainly had a ministry to Israel. He had no problem being called as a prophet and serving as a prophet, but when he was called to go to the Gentile nation of Israel, or, I'm sorry, Assyria, where Nineveh was, something grabs hold of him. He has a disdain for a people that had historically been Israel's enemy. Even in their time of prosperity, he could not bring himself to face an indignant group of people. Jonah rose to flee Tarshish. The exact location of Tarshish isn't actually known, but we do know that it is the opposite direction because he had to go to the shoreline. He went west, he found a boat, he joined the boat, and he told the mariners there that the reason he was fleeing because he was fleeing the presence of the Lord. Repeated twice, we find this phrase that he's fleeing the presence of the Lord. And where is he going? How can you flee the presence of an all-powerful God? How can you run away from God's will if He's calling you? If God's leading you in a direction, how can you run away from Him? The only hope you have is that He's decided to allow you to rebel. In the case of Jonah, that wasn't true. God did not have plans to allow Jonah to rebel. He fled, and he would be ultimately sent to Nineveh. Jonah would rather abandon everything. Fleeing perhaps the location of the temple in Jerusalem, he wanted to leave behind everything that he might not have to face a Gentile people. Jonah would rather abandon turning his blind eye to the fact that Israel and all of their blessings had provided him with the need to go to to this Gentile area where, where Israel was said to be a blessing to all nations, all the while missing the undergirding theme of this entire tale that God's sovereign purpose in sending a prophet to the Gentile people for the first time was to bring shame on a people who were spiritually depraved on Israel, to show them that a Gentile nation that did not belong to God's covenants were willing to repent when they were not. Nineveh would, in chapter 3, repent, but God's chosen nation would not. Years later, Babylon would not just conquer Assyria, but Assyria would take the northern tribes of Israel, Babylon would take the southern tribes of Judah, and all of Israel would be in exile. A great wind comes upon the sea, and we find Jonah resigned to his circumstances, falling asleep at the bottom of the ship. And, And we might note that this wasn't a regular storm. The mariners, those who were experienced sailors who knew what storms looked like, the Bible says, were afraid, crying out to their own gods. They were hurling cargo over the ship that they might lighten it and they might not be destroyed. And all the while, Jonah crawled up in the bottom of the ship, sleeping, because he knows what is happening. Most likely because they went to the west coast to join the ship. The sailors would have been Phoenicians worshiping the water god Baal or perhaps even Dagoon, the half-fish, half-man god. The captain comes to Jonah and asks, Who are you? Where do you come from? What people do you belong to? And God's sovereignty making Another miracle, the lots fall on Jonah indicating that he is the cause for their turmoil, for the tempestuous seas that they're at sea with. Jonah identifies himself as a Jew would to any Gentile people as a Hebrew. He identified the one true God as the God of both sea and and dry land and if you would just contrast that for a second with the God that the Phoenician people would have been praying to and crying out to these false gods who are water gods who had if you understood this the way that the Gentiles would have regarded it or pagans regard gods that they have spheres of influence and control and so their God had control over the water which is obviously the one that they needed to worship because they were sailors but Jonah's God the God of heaven of earth and the sea, had dominion over all things, sea and dry land. And you can see the fear in the people as they respond, what have you done to us? Why are you fleeing the Lord? A mighty God with a greater sphere of influence than the pagan gods of both Nineveh and the Phoenicians. They cast lots and they continue to be afraid They ask in verse 11, What shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down to us? And Jonah knows God has condemned him and judged him. The same way that he's promised to condemn Nineveh if they don't repent. The same way that he promises to chasten Israel if they don't repent. And Jonah says, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Verse 13, the sailors, the pagan Phoenicians, row hard to get back to dry land. These Gentile pagans show more regard for human life for one single human life than Jonah shows for hundreds of thousands of people. In the middle of the storm, they decide that they will fight to preserve one life rowing against the waves that they might make their way to dry land until it comes to the point that they can row no harder. They cry out to the Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. God's promise to chasten those who he loves is not a promise that we should run away from. We don't pretend to have any sort of prosperity gospel that if we're obedient to God that he'll meet all of our physical needs. In fact, we find that in the case of Israel, God met the physical needs of a nation before they were willing to repent as an act of mercy and as an act of grace. But he chastens Jonah. Jonah tries to run away from God's will, but he calls him back. He uses circumstances that, that, that stop him in his tracks. And Jonah, all the while resigned to his circumstances, is okay with sleeping in a ship that's sure to be crushed, showing no regard for anyone else on the ship, allowing himself to be thrown overboard, almost as an act of, here we go, there's nothing else I can do. I wish God would chase me like that." We navigate life and we make decisions and and we try to work the way that we're supposed to and live obediently to God. And I, I began this morning by asking the question, is our understanding of being essentially good the measure of transformation in our lives? any different than a lost person's understanding of salvation by works. When I navigate life, do I make decisions seeking God's will in every moment? A relationship with God means more than just having a great concept of Him. J.I. Packer writes, it is much more valuable to know God than it is to know of God. And that's probably a misquote. And all the wonder we, we wonder in, in the silence and in the questioning, in these moments of seeking God, as we're training our faith, as we're learning what it means to have a relationship with God, I wonder, am I being obedient enough? Have I neglected something? Is my pr- are my preferences causing me to live life in a different way? Have I disregarded what the Bible says? Do I approach it with so much fear that I am afraid that my American perspective would influence the way that I understand what God has written? I wish God would chasten me the way that he chastens Jonah. It would be easy to know if I strayed to the left or to the right, obeying God's will, if a sea billow would come and knock me down. But that isn't the case for most of us. Even though I do think the day is coming, thanks to Michelle, she said the only way she will ever go to Texas is in the belly of a fish. And so I know we will end up there someday. Do we approach our walk with God With so much fear, reverence, with regard for who God is, knowing that He is good, that His will is perfect, that every decision we make gets submitted to Him? Or do we ask God to do His best with whatever we do? There is no transformation. There is no transformative work in a life that simply contends with being basically good. What makes a Christian different than a moralist is that we seek God with the same fear that the mariners sought him in verse 14. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. To be obedient and picking up Jonah and hurling him into the sea. Verse 16 ends, that the men feared the Lord exceedingly, that they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him, indicating that Jonah would have told them a great deal more than is recorded in chapter 1, that they would have known how to worship the real God, the one true God, the God who has dominion and authority over sea and over dry land. When we look at the book of Jonah in its appropriate context, Jonah's ministry was called to bring shame to Israel. It's not allegorical. Jonah was a real man. These are real events. The miracles that are recorded here absolutely happened in history. But there is some symbol as Jonah represents the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, called to repent and to obey Him, to enjoy the blessings of a relationship with Him, running away from His will. A Gentile nation, willing to repent, condemns such a nation. If we were to apply this In a modern way and we have to be careful when we do this but if we were to look at the church as God's chosen people and we think of all the Gentile nations around us how shameful is it when people are willing to turn to God and to repent with zeal and passion When a new convert or somebody who finds themselves called to the faith for the first time has the energy and the joy to turn to God's Word and to ask what He means in their life and to seek Him in every decision, that their life is truly transformed. But the church sits complacent. And not just complacent in basic goodness, but complacent in sin. Condemned. Deserving of God's chastening. The Gentile people, the big city of Nineveh surely would have been gross. It would have been disgusting. But that's the reality. That ministry calls us into the dirtiest parts of people's lives. But the church would rather sit in their prosperity, spiritually depraved, than to seek the lost. I asked this morning an introduction, and I'll ask it again in conclusion. How is your thought process of basic goodness any different than a universalist concept of salvation? There is one truth, one absolute, self-evident, revealed truth. Does your understanding of what is good influence the way that you read the